0: This is Lisa Miller & Associates Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller.
1: Welcome, friends. On today's program, we have more lessons from last fall's devastating Hurricane Michael. Not only was the Florida Building Code not fully effective in recent construction, as we discussed in a previous podcast, But neither were the mitigation efforts designed to fortify our homes and businesses, according to a new FEMA report. A team of building experts conducted an assessment of 350 structures affected by Michael's horrible winds that reached up to 160 miles an hour. They paint a dismal result. Buildings with wind retrofits, such as stronger windows or doors, suffered significant damage even when those windows and doors held up. The FEMA report notes people were injured as a result. Expensive mitigation upgrades went for nothing. And entire buildings, including multimillion-dollar local government facilities, now have to be rebuilt from scratch. So what happened? Isn't the mitigation that we talk about a lot supposed to be a smart investment? We'll ask our guests on today's program, including a former state legislator who had a hand in creating the Florida Panhandles Building Code. So joining us today, it's my privilege to introduce former State Senator Charlie Clary, founding principal with DAG Architects in beautiful Destin, Florida. We also have Dr. Arne Womble, research engineer with the Institute for Business and Home Safety, a wonderful nonprofit that does great analysis work on mitigation and resiliency in Tampa, and he led a field survey team after Michael struck the panhandle. And we also have Dr. Karthik Ramanathan, and he is the Assistant Vice President and Principal Engineer for AIR Worldwide, a leading catastrophe modeling firm in the world. It is the best, in my opinion, and he focuses on structural impacts of storms and is fresh off of looking at what happened in Hurricane Dorian, which nearly missed our beautiful state. Welcome, gentlemen.
2: Thanks, Lisa. Really so, happy sir. to be here. Wonder-
1: Hi, Wonderful. So, let's start with Charlie. I'm thrilled to have you here in Bay County, which was ground zero for Michael. Officials estimate Hello. nearly 75% of its almost 70,000 households were impacted. So, Charlie, I want to start with you. Let's go back for a few minutes to our late August podcast that we have with weather meteorologist Brian Norcross from South Florida and Cindy Shaw with Hague Engineering. A University of Florida engineering school report conducted for the Florida Building Commission found that the Florida Building Code wasn't tough enough to withstand Michael's Category 5 winds, not even in some newer structures, although they did fare better than those built before the 2002 Code was enacted. But almost two-thirds of those buildings built after the Code had some roof cover loss, according to the report. Charlie, I would love to get your perspective. What did you see when Michael blew through your Part of the world.
3: Well, from my perspective, uh, we have an office in Palma City, and uh, a number of our people uh, rode out the storm either at the office or in their homes. And many of their homes were were built uh, prior to the, the new building code uh, going into effect. And a lot of them suffered uh, uh, significant damage, but it was interesting that the damage was created a lot by in in their neighborhoods by falling trees on the houses. Uh, There was some wind damage uh, affected, but um, a lot. I don't know if you were in Bay County shortly after the hurricane uh, hit, uh, so many of the trees were just knocked over, split in two, branches going everywhere. So there was significant damage to flying debris or falling trees as much as there were uh, the wind damage, or storm, storm
1: surge. And whenever you were in the state Senate, I know during your tenure you made some changes. You were very effective in championing some changes to the Panhandle Building Code. Tell us what you were thinking at the time, and this was back in the early 2000s if I remember, when you recommended and got past those changes. And then I'm also curious, with Hurricane Michael behind us, what's your perspective today? would love to hear your thoughts about that.
3: Well, back when we were uh, working on developing the uh, criteria for the new building code, uh, when it was passed, there there is only one building code. There's not a panhandle building code. Let me let me clarify that. Okay. Uh, there is building code, but we have one particular area that uh, I tried to work with our local home builders, uh, work with the insurance industry. We took a lot of the data. We went went back as far as they had data on hurricanes and the impacts of the state of Florida. And back at that time, in in 2000, 2001, 2002, when we were doing our research, there had never been a category four or greater hurricane to impact uh, Northwest Florida. And uh, so we we looked at that data, We, we tried to use what insurance companies use as they make decisions going forward tried to come up with some ways of helping as, as we made the codes tougher and, and actually more uniform throughout the state, tried to find ways to help the home builders with uh, having the ability to build housing that was tougher, withstand the, the wind loads, the storm surge, but also be still be somewhat affordable as they constructed them. Uh, these homes because we were in a very intense growth mode during during that time uh, I think we uh, uh, during that time we we reached um, what I would call the bubble when the bubble burst and we went back into a recession but that was around 2006 and 7 but in the time we were reviewing the code it was a, a lot of construction going on and there was a there was a fair amount of concern particularly in our area by by the home builders that i I was listening to all sides the general contractors as to try to how do we make our codes uniform tougher uh, more resilient to dealing with the hurricanes and storm surge and uh, still be somewhat affordable in this process
1: and and let me ask you this charlie now that in in that we created a different wind standard if you will for the panhandle yes we have the one code but it was a different wind strength if you will that the homes were built to and i know there had never been a michael hit the panhandle and that crossroads of affordability you know you have to do we take the risk and we took the risk under your tenure and then i think you said some legislators changed that if you were to do it again today, would you pass that legislation, or would you not? Knowing what you know now, just curious.
3: You know the the, the wind lines, the wind maps that you see for the building code. Uh, I've not established those. Those were established by the experts as we looked at all of Florida. Uh, the area that I focused on was the impact glass, uh, windborne debris. Uh, and we created a uh, a zone one mile from the coast uh, inland where you had to have the impact glass or storm shutters deal with windborne debris. And then north of that, you just had to build according to the wind wind map design structural design guidelines that were in the code. And that was created by Everybody at the table when we created that my focus was really on the impact glass, but knowing what we know today uh, Impact glass that at one mile uh, limit has gone away and uh, now Everybody is under the same guidelines uh, throughout the state as it relates to impact glass
1: And I think you did uh, what you had to do at the time. I know the um, low median income. Our two largest employers there are hospitals and our Department of Corrections, and those are not high-paying jobs. So, you know, balancing the ability for people to afford what they can, taking a risk that a Cat 5 would never hit, and, you know, we'll, those two homes that are over there now will be built to a tougher standard, and we better hope we never have a Cat 5 again. So, Dr. Womble, I'll throw it over to you. You know, there's two types of damage we generally saw, the structural damage and the cover and cladding damage, which, of course, is the roof and the siding, and the building code applies to both. But they seem to underperform, particularly on the roof and siding. And what were your thoughts as to why that occurred?
0: Well, yes a couple of different things that we've thought about on, on that uh, look at the roofs first really uh, we're thinking there's there's still uh, some work to be done in the in the product itself uh, even beyond the attachment uh, to the roof but we, we see uh, aging effects in particular that seem to play a big role in how the roofs perform uh, and we are frustrated as well as i think everybody in in the industry is is frustrated by the fact that uh the, the standard tests for shingles and we run them in our lab and they pass a certain test and then when they get subjected to reality out there in the field they don't perform like the the laboratory test uh, indicated that that they might and so we uh, are are realizing there's a a big disconnect there and that there's a lot of work that could still be done in making more resilient materials particularly ones that uh, can weather better and reduce uh, the aging effects so that's that's one of the things that we think is is a big contributor to the sorts of damage we were seeing when it comes to the siding i think we we probably have seen Some uh, results of the fact that so much attention has been given to the roofing ever since, especially Hurricane Andrew, and trying to get the roofing right, that uh, maybe the the siding has not quite gotten as much attention and still needs to get the uh, uh, attention. I'm glad to see that there's going to be more attention paid to the siding. I think we... My, my prediction is we may actually be able to make more strides even faster with the siding material by giving some uh, attention to it
1: so that's very helpful Dr. Womble Let's move into what FEMA found in some of their assessments and and Karthik, I'm going to throw it to you. The recent FEMA report found that and I'll quote it, even modest damage to the building envelope or rooftop equipment was observed to lead to costly water damage, which can take months to repair and cause disruption of building operations. And that's actually straight from the report. The companion report addressing best practices has some recommendations on building materials that we can use to provide extra layers of protection. So I wonder from your perspective, Karthik, you know, being that you're an expert in building material science and testing, um, Are we where we need to be in this 21st century with respect to what works and what doesn't? I know that you stay in that business and watch, you know, what building materials can and can't do in terms of resiliency, but you've heard Dr. Womble talk about the weak links. You've heard um, Charlie talk about, you know, with respect to what they did in the panhandle. What are your thoughts about do we have the research done or do we need to do more to withstand these, what are going to be worse hurricanes as we move into the future?
2: I think you you bring up a million dollar question the way I look at it um, and the answer as it would be to any million dollar question is not straightforward. So I'm going to try and answer you in different layers and some of it might sort of go back into the earlier questions you posed to um, Charlie and Dr. Womble as well. So. I mean, time and again, be it the National Science Foundation in the US or be it the Department of Energy or the National Institutes of Standards and Technologies or premier organizations like the IBHS that Dr. Womble represents, I think there, there is a lot of body of work when it comes there to look at resilient cons- construction to begin with, to assess the performance of these mitigation measures and also to help people understand what would every dollar of Sort of mitigation help you achieve in the long run so personally i feel there is no dearth in terms of how to build properly or how it could be done i think a lot of it depends on sort of translating that how it can be done to what actually pans out out there in the field and let me help you understand what i what i meant by that last comment
1: mm-hmm.
2: um so when i was looking at areas that were ravaged by michael in the panhandle or even irma in the florida keys Um, uh, there there was sort of a striking similarity or dissimilarity, depending on how you call it. So there was widespread prevalence of metal roofs. And as all of us on this call and pretty much everyone in Florida knows, metal roofs, if they are built and constructed properly, are one of the best mitigators of wind damage when it comes to a roof cover option. But then, time and again, you saw that metal roofs were installed on pre-existing shingle roofs and I think this is referred to as roof-overs. So when you're not attaching a metal roof to a substrate that it ought to be attached to, you cannot expect a metal roof to perform the way it is supposed to perform. Um, so here you're talking of a a homeowner or a decision maker it could be a commercial building or it could be a homeowner and residential home they are trying to do the right thing by installing a metal roof but then there there seems to be a lack of knowledge in terms of what are you supposed to attach that metal roof to Um, so maybe some level of education in terms of uh, not just picking the right material or the right mitigation measure but how do you go about installing it I think will go a long way. Now even when you look at a properly installed <laughs> metal roof, so let's go from that previous scenario that I described in installing a metal roof on top of a shingle roof, let's say you look at cases where a metal roof is actually installed on a proper wooden roof deck Um Uh, Often, uh, a thing that we saw very commonly in the Floridan Panhandle was that um, uh, the metal roof in that case was not literally built to represent a standing seam metal roof. Now, what you expect to see in a standing seam metal roof are these sheets of metal sort of crimped very closely together um, and then you drive a proper connection in the form of a screw through that seam Um, so that the layers interlock themselves really well and there is very good bearing of those metal panels against uh, the roof deck. And oftentimes you saw that either the fasteners were located in the wrong locations or the metal sheets were not crimped together, uh, in which case it would not perform uh, like a classic standing seam metal roof would perform and therefore it does not give you uh, the resistance that you expect it to give you uh, in a wind event. So...
1: So hang on a second, Karthik. What what you're talking about is proper installation versus improper installation that could have affected what some of the features did or didn't do during Hurricane Michael. Is that where you're headed?
2: That is correct.
1: And so I want to kick that over to Charlie and either Dr. Womble. Whenever FEMA did their recovery report called Successfully Retrofitting Buildings for Wind Resistance... They talked about making more resilient the entire quote envelope, and you're only as good as the weakest link. There are two schools of thought. There's one that says people should do what they do, what you can make your windows better or make your roof better. There are those that believe you can't, it doesn't make any difference. You should do the whole thing or do nothing at all. So, Charlie, I want to ask you are you of the mind that says if you can do something, do it, for what you can do, and hopefully you can do the rest later, or don't waste your time if you're not going to do the whole structure.
3: Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's sort of a delicate kind of a, a question in that we've only had one category of five storm in the history of storms that we have records of in the panhandle. We've had a, a number of category one, two, and even three storms.
1: You're right. And Dr. Womble, what are your thoughts? All or nothing?
3: We are
0: of, of the opinion that it's it's best to do what you can. Uh, there's incremental progress to be made. And as Charlie mentioned, we, we have smaller hurricanes. And if you've spent a few hundred dollars even, you may have been uh, successful in mitigating the the very costly damages from some of the smaller storms if you can do better then do so statistically still even with michael thrown into the mix uh, we're, we're we're still at, at a lower risk in the panhandle area so i think even the small steps are very helpful
1: good to know i, I am a believer in that as well and that you do a little bit and hope to god the wind doesn't blow until you get the rest of it done Let me throw out to you some changes that we know are going to be coming in in the 2020 building code. First, they're going to adopt the ASCE 7-16, which has a lot to do with, you know, design pressures on roofs for buildings less than 60 feet in height, and it'll result in reducing the uplift of some single-family dwellings and trying to, you know, keep those roofs down and strapped on and... Second, they want to, the Building Commission's looking at requiring a special type of um, what's called a secondary roof underlayment. Um, that's certainly been done with retrofitting, but not with new construction, so that may be coming into play as well. And then lastly, I, I think they want to add a section that uh, deals with um, vinyl and fiber cement and, and hardboard and how those uh, materials you know, how they work with uh, con- within the constructs of, of various structures. So knowing that the building commission is doing what it what it can to make the, the seventh edition of the building code stronger, uh, I'll throw it over to you, Karthik, since you're in the modeling business and you're in the business of explaining to those that take risk what will or what won't work, if you were king for a day, do you like the suggested changes to the building code and what would you do differently to make it even stronger or what would you do to change it?
2: Absolutely. I think uh, the Florida building code is definitely moving in the right direction with all of the things that you just stated in the last minute or so. Um, and they can certainly help in fortifying those structures a little bit better and give them a better resistance in, in the in the face of events such as Michael or Irma that impacted Florida. Now, in terms of where the fine should go and where people have to sort of uh, look at, and this is sort of my common observation—not just looking at Florida, but even looking at uh, the impact of Hurricane Harvey in Texas, or looking at the impact of Hurricane Florence in um, in the Carolinas, or even as recently looking at what Dorian did to the Bahamas. I think today we, as a as a science, have sort of matured to a level that we're. Fundamentally, I think we are doing really well when it comes to understanding how the roof covers and the roof systems in general behave to wind storms. And as you rightly said early on, Lisa, in the sense that uh, it only takes one event to find that weakest link in your structure. I think the research now needs to focus more heavily on how do you build soffits that can sort of withstand the impact of wind driven rain. Uh, so that you can sort of keep those envelopes sort of watertight. How do you sort of look at at the performance of wall siding, be it vinyl siding or be it uh, the brick kind of a wall siding? How can you make these better? So I think future building codes or future research should start sort of moving down in the envelope Uh, Because I think we have done a fairly good job, I should say much better job in trying to understand the roof systems and fortifying them. I think it's about time we sort of move down the envelope because that entire load transfer from the roof to the walls, through the walls, to the foundation, I think is a key determinant on keeping that envelope locked. And I personally feel that's where the next generation research and the building code should sort of move towards. Uh, to not just mitigate damage and prevent destruction, but also to keep these envelopes watertight. Because, as you rightly said, it's the water that is the killer when it comes to uh, the loss experience and how much uh, a building suffers in terms of the dollars. It is actually the water that makes the big dent.
1: Very good observations, Karthik. Dr. Womble, one more for you, and then I'll have Charlie close us out. Dr. Womble, I read everything I can about what our, what our brethren on the reinsurance, in the reinsurance community think and because, of course, they are the ones that are funding a lot of the risk-taking in Florida. And I saw where a couple of Munich Re senior executives said that one of the biggest problems is the lack of enforcement of the building code. And we saw that in Hurricane Andrew. And you're all over Florida. You know every crack in the pavement in Florida. Are you seeing building officials... You know doing what they can do i know we've got tight budgets in certain counties do you think we could do more enforcement what are your observations about we may have this great code but it doesn't work if we don't enforce it
0: well i think that's that's very true that's not the the complete answer to the question but it's certainly an important part of it i think you're naturally going to have different levels of enforcement just because as you mentioned that having the different sorts of budgets throughout the state uh... and the ability to to really cover what is necessary uh, idhs is is seeing that building code really is as a way of protecting the consumers and so we we definitely think that is is important and uh... having as uniform uh, uh, code as possible to uh, have that enforcement as as uniform as possible is certainly to our advantage. So we certainly advocate for that uh, in, in trying to beef up those uh, codes, their adoptions, and their enforcements.
1: That's exactly what I think um, and IBHS is a leader in that. Charlie, I'm going to close it out with you. You're in the Panhandle. This is your chance for a commercial to tell our listening audience what you need, what you think we need to be doing more to help the Panhandle rebuild. As a leading architect in the Panhandle, you know, share with our audience what you're seeing, say, in the next 12 to 18 months. Are we on the right path, and what can we do to help?
3: Thank you, Lisa. I, I think I think we're definitely on the right path uh, to building uh, – and building under a tougher code. Uh, enforcement is, is vital and, uh, and also having not just the people that work with the county and the cities to do in code enforcement, but, but the architects and engineers that work for the client. Uh, it's important to have them involved to make sure the structures are built according to plans and specifications. What we saw, uh, like over in Mexico Beach, we, d- we designed a house over there. It was built to today's codes. And uh, when the storm surge came through, it was right on the Gulf. Uh, when the storm surge came through, you saw the pictures of what the storm surge did to Mexico Beach. The house that we did stood very well. It uh, it was designed for the storm surge to pass underneath the blowout walls, performed the way they were supposed to. And it withstood the wind forces. And it was only about 40% complete. We had just dried it in. But what was interesting is, when you saw the houses after the storm, you saw the pictures there were two or three houses behind the house that we had uh, designed and it was under construction they actually stayed in place because our our particular structure blocked most of the storm surge that would have impacted them. On both sides they were wiped clean down to to the slab and they were old construction the houses on either side. So the codes are are performing i think pretty well it's uh we have to just stay diligent make sure enforcement is there and uh and learn from lessons that we've seen from michael and and other hurricanes and make the changes necessary
1: that's great advice go ahead yes karthik
2: So I just wanted to piggyback on what Charlie said, and he brings up a really, really good point, because when you look at Florida as a state, the level of building code enforcement in general is is very good when you compare it to some of its peers. Um, So when you compare the state of enforcement at the local level in, say, Georgia or Alabama, and when you compare it to Florida, Florida in general anywhere in the state does a good job. But then, as all of us know, the individual departments within the state of Florida have a big have a big sort of a gap in terms of how they enforce and adopt certain practices uh, be it verifying the building plans or being it being it in terms of conducting on-the-site inspections um, and I think the panhandle or other parts of Florida sort of need to move to a level as the high velocity hurricane zone which is essentially Miami Dade or Broward not just in terms of building standards but also in terms of the enforcement standards Because Michael pretty much did what Hurricane Andrew did to the current high-velocity hurricane zone. So at least going by that lesson, I think that the time is never more opportune than what it is now to sort of reflect that learning in terms of a building code enforcement. It's the panhandle because having a good building code is one thing, but an equally if not more important aspect is how well you're enforcing it and how well you're holding the structures Uh, accountable to sort of follow the prescriptions of that building code and then the other aspect is uh, storm surge so Florida believe it or not um, has one of the highest proportion of homes founded on slab foundations right along the coast and slabs are the last thing you want when you sort of build structures right along the coast you want to do something like what some of the coastal communities in the Florida Keys does in terms of elevating the structures on top of stilts or piles. Um, And when you look at the panhandle, the coastline along the panhandle, you see a widespread prevalence of slab foundations. So when when you combine the presence of slab foundations with the FEMA flood maps in some of these areas, and you might be thinking, why am I talking about FEMA flood maps? But it's because the building codes refer you to sort of locate the lowest floor in your building. Uh, the lowest occupiable floor in your building, at least at the level of the FEMA specified base flood elevation or a few feet above it, providing a freeboard. Now, when you have these deficient FEMA flood maps in those same areas, and when you combine those deficiencies together with a slab foundation, which is not a good performer when it comes to storm surge, yes. you end up seeing sort of uh, the catastrophic damage that you saw with what happened to Michael and storm surge. So, um, That could be another aspect to look at in terms of what are desirable foundation types and how do you combine that information together with a robust kind of a flood map uh, in some of these areas. And if the local building departments can also have that under their purview, and I think it goes a long way in sort of building a resilient community out there.
1: You've just given me an idea for our next podcast, Karthik. Thank you so much for that. And I'm going to close by thanking my very distinguished guest, Charlie Clary, again, founding principal with DAG Architects in Beautiful Destin. Thank you for being here, Charlie.
3: Thank you. Enjoyed it.
1: Great. And Dr. Arne Womble, a a premier research engineer with IBHS out of Tampa. If you aren't following their work, you should. It's IBHS.org. Thank you, Arne.
0: Thank you. I hope it was helpful.
1: It was. And, of course, my heart and soul is Karthik, who goes into battle and tries to look at these structures after every single hurricane, and I just admire his work so much. We should spend a day following him. Karthik, thank you again for your great insight and for being a part of this.
2: Totally my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: You're very welcome. So let's keep an eye out for FEMA's um, report They've got some um, conclusions that they're going to draw with their mitigation assessment team and their best practices reports, and we'll be eagerly watching those, and we'll post those on our website when they come out. But you know, it was just very interesting to hear the FEMA experts. They're just telling us that more needs to be done, and that there's ongoing concern that even for those that have um, you know insurance claim checks in their hands, some Panhandle residents may not be able to, to you know afford rebuild and charlie i hope you keep us posted if there are certain instances where we may be able to help if you come across homeowners who aren't able to do that i want to hear from all of you you know is is it time for tougher standards materials and practices to become uniform across the state what more should we be doing do you know of instances I know, do our listeners know of instances where someone did invest in mitigating, but it wasn't enough to withstand a Category 5? We would love to hear from you. You can call us and leave your comments or questions on air right here at the Florida Insurance Roundup. You can just call us at 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002 or send me an email um, 24-7 Lisa Miller at lisamillerassociates.com that's Lisa Miller all one word at lisamillerassociates.com and you can look at our show notes for links to all these reports um, and if you have any commentary certainly let us know so with that I'm going to wish you all well and say stay on the trail and let us hear from you have a great week and weekend and we'll be talking soon
0: This has been Lisa Miller and Associates Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.